Hey, everybody, what's up? And welcome to Summarily, a podcast for busy lawyers. I'm your host, Robert Scavone Jr. And I'm your co-host, Jennifer Watson Obiola. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. This is our first episode into PIP and insurance land. And we're going to be doing these on a monthly basis to keep everyone up to date on important PIP and insurance related matters. Jen is our resident PIP insurance expert, and she's going to be helping us out with these things. So Jennifer, before we start uh, into the first opinion for this episode, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Well, I handle insurance uh, defense litigation and primarily focus on PIP defense and also uh, PIP appeals. I also handle insurance coverage issues. And where are you at right now? I work out of St. Petersburg at Reynolds Prino Shadwick. Excellent. Before we get to the opinions, let me give you the disclaimers. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an advertisement for legal services. The information provided on this podcast is not intended to be legal advice. You should not rely on what you hear on this podcast as legal advice. If you have a legal issue, please contact a lawyer. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests are solely those of the individuals and do not represent the views or opinions of the firms or organizations with which they are affiliated or the views or opinions of this podcast's advertisers. This podcast is available for private, non-commercial use only. Any editing, reproduction, or redistribution of this podcast for commercial use or monetary gain without the expressed written consent of the podcast creators is prohibited. So Jen, why don't you start us off with the first opinion for this episode? Okay. The first opinion is Allstate versus Jesse Lee Ray. This opinion was issued by the second DCA on September 30th. This was a petition for writ of certiorari and a bad faith action. In the trial court, the estate of Jesse Lee Ray had sued the insurer alleging bad faith for failing to reach a settlement agreement and for allegedly breaching its duty to defend by rejecting an opportunity to have a new trial, which then bound the estate to the original judgment amount. During litigation, the estate moved to compel some broad discovery requests. It sought goals, strategies, objectives, performance metrics, or business targets for the insurer's claims department. As expected, the insurer objected to these requests on several grounds, including relevancy, privacy, attorney-client privilege, and work product. The trial court, in an apparent attempt to compromise, ordered redaction of certain private information like social security numbers, phone numbers, and protected health information, but ultimately ordered production of the documents sought by the estate. The insurer then petitioned for writ of certiorari. Now, this was not a PIP suit, but sometimes you'll see similar discovery requests and objections in PIP cases. The second DCA made several holdings here. First, it held that the trial court's order compelling production of the insurer's employee personnel files violates the employee's fundamental rights under the Florida Constitution. The court relied on prior Florida Supreme Court opinion and fifth DCA opinion. Additionally, the court held that certiorari is appropriate relief when individual employees who are not parties to the suit did not have the opportunity to raise privacy objections. 
those employees don't have an adequate remedy on appeal once their privacy has been violated. Likewise, certiorari relief is appropriate when discovery of privileged information is ordered by the trial court because there's no remedy on direct appeal once privilege has been compromised. This opinion also addressed communications between the insurer and in-house counsel. It held that whether oral, contained in documents, or contained in a database, those communications are typically privileged. So with requests for personnel files or in-house counsel communications, the trial court must first conduct an in-camera inspection to determine whether there's information that is not relevant to the lawsuit and intrusive on privacy. Even if the trial court makes an effort to require redaction of personal information. And that inspection must also address privilege claims. Now, in PIP, you often see allegations that objections are waived without a privilege log. But this opinion held that the obligation to file a privilege log does not arise until the trial court has determined that the information sought is otherwise discoverable. So the, the court must first rule on all the non-privilege objections, and then the obligation to file a privilege log for privilege objections will arise. Let me ask you this, Jen. Why were they seeking employment records in this case, do you think? Well, if I had to guess, I would think that they're looking for information that can beef up their claim of bad faith in this case. So they're looking for information that may establish the business practice of the insurance company, maybe something to establish that they regularly deny these types of claims or delay payment in these types of claims. And why would that show up in an employment file? Well, I think from the insurer's perspective, it probably wouldn't. And that's why they're making the objection over relevance on top of all of the privilege objections. Perhaps there may be an argument that an employee, a specific insurance adjuster, has a history of not complying with the guidelines of the insurance company. And you may find that there. But I think that's why the ruling here about the in-camera inspection is important, because there may not be any of that in there. Right. Right. Excellent. Okay. I want to pause for a minute to thank our sponsor, Ascension Global Staffing and Executive Search. Do you want to find the right talent to elevate your firm to the next level? Are you searching for a position that will enhance your career? Of course you are. And you need a partner that will help you find the right match. Ascension Global Staffing and Executive Search is that partner. Ascension is a national Hispanic woman-owned and operated executive search firm that works with law firms, corporations, and individuals. They bring together firms and talent across a variety of industries. Ascension's team of professionals understand the ever-shifting job market and utilize their intimate knowledge of firms, companies, and industries to connect employers and people. Ascension knows that a solid team is a firm's strongest asset and that people thrive when they are part of the right team. Whether you are looking to bring on new talent or trying to find the best fit for your career, Ascension can help. Firms and companies that partner with Ascension can receive a 10% discount on Ascension services by emailing info at ascensionsearch.com. That's info at A-S-C-E-N-S-I-O-N search.com. 
Team up with elite talent. Elevate with ascension. Why don't we jump to the second opinion for this month's episode? Okay. I'm actually going to jump back a month here and mention an opinion issued in United Automobile Insurance Company versus Keith Buchalter, D.C. This opinion was issued by the 4th DCA back in August 3rd. For anyone out there practicing PIP, you know too well that it's not unusual to see allegations of bad faith claims handling added to PIP complaints along with other counts. This was a PIP suit where the provider initially saw a declaratory judgment regarding coverage and then amended the complaint to allege that the insurer had acted in bad faith by violating several subsections of the PIP statute. The provider asserted that it was entitled to attorney's fees for that alleged bad faith claims handling. Ultimately, the insurer confessed judgment as to some claims, but not to the bad faith claims. In fact, the insurer argued that the provider had failed to state a cause of action for bad faith because no private right of action existed for the specific PIP statute violations being argued by the provider. During litigation, the trial court entered a default against the insurer as a sanction for discovery violations and held that as to the bad faith claims, the insurer waived its objection for failure to state a cause of action. First, the fourth DCA held that the insurer had not waived its failure to state a cause of action defense despite the sanction order. It held that failure to state a cause of action may be raised by motion for judgment on the pleadings, at the trial on the merits, or in the answer or reply. Then the court gets to the meat of the bad faith claims. The provider alleged that the insurer acted in bad faith by failing to pay valid claims, failing to pay claims until receiving demand letters, and requesting documentation without a reasonable basis to do so. These were all alleged to be violations of the PIP statute. The provider then argued that based on the violations of the PIP statute, it was entitled to a remedy, including attorney's fees under the Unfair Insurance Trade Practices Act. But as the court held, the sections of the PIP statute the insurer was alleged to be in violation of contained nothing that expressly allowed for a private right of action. The opinion here agreed with the insurer holding that statutory remedies for first party bad faith claims are found in a different section of the statute literally titled civil remedy. In fact, the PIP statute only provides for one cause of action for PIP benefits, but the civil remedy section of the statute provides a specific list of actions within the Unfair Insurance Trade Practices Act that could support a civil remedy. Those actions include things like unfair claim settlement practices, illegal dealings in premiums, and the refusal to insure. So the alleged bad faith actions taken by the insurer must be found in the civil remedy section of the statute to provide a civil remedy. Since the alleged violations of the PIP statute here were not found in the civil remedy section of the statute, they did not create a private remedy permitted by the legislator. Therefore, the trial court erred when it issued judgment finding that the insurer had acted in bad faith by allegedly violating the PIP statute. Rather, the trial court was required to dismiss the bad faith counts for failure to state a cause of action. Jen, was this is this something new that you're seeing? We've seen these bad faith claims be alleged in PIP complaints before. It seems to me that this may be increasingly happening in PIP. You definitely are seeing them mixed in with the PIP complaints. 
So was this the first time that you're aware of that a, a district court had decided that there were these two separate buckets? The the first time in relation to PIP, for sure. I think this is definitely a defense that you see insurers making in other cases, but this is the first decision that we've seen come out with PIP. Historically, you don't see any PIP decisions discussing bad faith in this context. The word has been used in case law as a sort of substitution for nefarious, the word nefarious claims handling and benefits exhaustion cases. It's not the same. The case law doesn't treat it the same as, as the civil remedy for bad faith. So sometimes people get those two mixed up a bit or, Mm. or like to use one set of cases to argue the other. But we're definitely, we definitely see these civil remedy type of issues come up in PIP complaints. Interesting. Okay. Well, that was very helpful. Let's move on to the next opinion for this episode. The next opinion is Chris Thompson, PA versus Geico Indemnity Company. This was a September 14th opinion from the 4th DCA. This opinion is actually a follow-up to an opinion issued on July 27th. Now, the July 27th opinion addressed pre-suit demand letters, which is a hot topic issue in PIP and worth mentioning here briefly. The court's July 27th decision had two major holdings. One holding was that a pre-suit demand letter, which sought an amount that was different than the amount alleged to be at issue in the complaint, was not compliant with the pre-suit demand requirement found in the PIP statute. That requirement is a condition precedent to suit. Most surprisingly, to me anyway, the July 27th opinion finally addressed a claim often made by providers that an insurer waives its demand defense when it fails to object to the demand in response to the demand letter. That's before the suit is initiated. The court here held that the insurer does not need to notify the insured or assignee that the demand letter is defective to preserve its defense for a later suit. Aside from the demand issue, this appeal also dealt with the issue of whether the insurer was entitled to attorney's fees under a PFS. After the July opinion was released, the provider filed a motion for written order regarding the PFS issue. The September 14th written order addressed this issue. At summary judgment in the trial court, the medical provider had simply argued that the PFS was not sent by the insurer in good faith. It was not until the motion for reconsideration in the trial court that the provider argued the PFS did not comply with the rules of civil procedure. The trial court denied the provider's motion, finding that the issue was not timely raised. On appeal, the provider argued that the appellate court could not ignore binding authority from the rules of civil procedure regarding PFSs just because it was not brought before the trial court until a motion for reconsideration. The fourth DCA held that the trial court has the inherent authority to modify or retract a non-final order on reconsideration. However, it's not an abuse of discretion to deny a motion for reconsideration when it raises issues that could have been, but were not raised in a pre-hearing, filing, or entitlement hearing. So it's important that the legal issues be raised before rehearing, otherwise they may not be heard at all. This opinion also found that the trial court had not abused its discretion in finding that the PFS was made in good faith. Now, 
we don't usually go through the trial docket for these updates, but the argument that the PFS here was made in bad faith was of particular interest to me since I handle PIP litigation, which has one-way statutory fees. So the PFS is typically the only avenue for defense fees to be awarded aside from the rare occasions that sanctions are imposed. I wondered here why the provider had argued that the PFS was made in bad faith to begin with. The trial docket shows that the provider argued the PFS was made in bad faith because it was for only $1 and it was served before the insurer had filed its affirmative defenses. The idea, I suppose, is that the insurer could not give value to the case before it filed its defenses. But the trial court found that the PFS accurately reflected the exposure determined by the defendant and that there is no requirement in the statute or rules that the defendant must have filed their affirmative defenses before serving a PFS. Thanks for the summary on those on those two opinions, Jen. I will make sure to link not only the September opinion in the show notes, but I will also link the July opinion in the show notes, as you pointed out, because it's really important. Why don't we move to our final opinion for this first PIP insurance law update? All right. The last opinion is Carglass Inc. LLC versus Keyshurance Insurance Company. This is a September 16th decision from the 5th DCA. This is actually a glass lawsuit, or we call it glass windshield related lawsuit, rather than a PIP claim, but it has implications for PIP suits. The suit was filed as a small claims action, just as many PIP suits are. The parties agreed to invoke the rules of civil procedure in the action. The trial court's order invoked the rules of civil procedure, but retained the six-month provision for lack of prosecution found in the small claims rules. This suit lasted three years. The court issued a notice of lack of prosecution and the provider filed a notice of good cause. The trial court accepted it, but then two more years passed and another notice of lack of prosecution was issued. The provider filed the same statement of good cause and then the court dismissed, finding that there had been no record activity in the six months leading up to the notice of lack of prosecution. Now, Florida small claims rules state that after six months without record activity, the trial court must issue a notice of intent to dismiss for lack of prosecution 30 days before the hearing on it. And unless good cause has been shown in writing five days before the hearing, the case shall be dismissed. So the way to avoid dismissal is to show good cause. Florida Rules of Civil Procedure, on the other hand, states that after 10 months without record activity, the trial court can issue the notice of intent to dismiss for lack of prosecution. If no activity occurs within 60 days of service of that notice, the action shall be dismissed. So the Rules of Civil Procedure give a second chance to the provider to show activity by filing something within 60 days of getting the notice to stop the dismissal. The provider here argued on appeal that the 10-month time frame for record activity under the rules of civil procedure should control, or alternatively, that the small claims rule should be interpreted to include a 30-day grace period to show record activity, just like the 60-day grace period in the Florida Rules of Civil Procedure, meaning the provider wanted that second chance to file something to stop the dismissal, which is given when a case follows the Florida Rules of Civil Procedure. The 5th DCA held that in cases where all rules of civil procedure have been invoked, then the grace period found in the rules of civil procedure would be applicable. However, if the order invoking the rules retains the small claim rule regarding lack of prosecution, 
then the small claim rule on lack of prosecution will control. The small claims rule does not contain an implicit 30-day grace period to file record activity, like the 60-day grace period in the rules of civil procedure. This opinion held that even though the small claims rule has been amended to conform with the Florida rules of civil procedure, the Florida Supreme Court did not include a similar grace period in the small claims rule. So there is no grace period when the small claims rules on lack of prosecution are retained. And lastly, in footnote three of the opinion, the court held that the abuse of discretion standard on lack of prosecution issues is only triggered if the trial court must make a determination of good cause. Where there was no record activity or good cause shown in writing as required by the rules, then a good cause determination is not needed because dismissal is simply warranted. So the abuse of discretion standard is not triggered at all in those cases. Does this opinion mean that you can pick and choose which small claims rules you want to use and which civil procedure rules you want to use? It means the trial court can. The trial court has discretion to accept the party's invocation of the rules in whole or in part. And for various reasons, they may retain some of the small claims rules. In PIP, you'll see cases like this where they retain the lack of prosecution rule, mainly because the volume of PIP litigation in Florida is very high. And these cases tend to take a lot of time. A lot of the issues are resolved in the county courts, so they're not binding on the state. And until you get decisions up at the DCA level, these issues may remain in the trial court for years waiting for those DCA decisions to come out. So one of the things that they want to do is stop the cases from just sitting idly by while you wait for DCA opinions to come out. So they'll retain rules like this this is the most prevalent one, the, the lack of prosecution rule that you'll see. Well, this has been exciting for the naysayers out there who say that insurance law is not interesting. This is a lesson to the contrary. So I want to thank you very much for coming on the episode, for co-hosting. I'm really excited to have you on board. And I'm looking forward to the the few, you know, the months ahead. Like I said, we're going to do one of these a month for for PIP and insurance-related matters. PIP especially seems to be sort of a niche area of the law, and I thought it'd be great to have somebody like you on to talk about them. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you got it. All right, folks, that's a wrap. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, please share this podcast with your friends and colleagues and tune into future episodes. Also, if you come across important opinions that you think would be helpful, please send your summary to summarilypod at gmail.com and we'll try to include it in a future episode. Thanks as always to my friend Chris Clark of Pendulum Productions for editing and producing this podcast. You can find him and his work at vimeo.com backslash pendulumproductionsllc. Thanks again for listening. And remember, folks, case law is one word.